Welcome to Privacy Abbreviated, brought to you by BBB National Programs. As our regular listeners know, our goal here is to really help business leaders prepare and operationalize for what is next in the privacy space. I am Donna Frazier, Senior Vice President of Privacy Initiatives here at BBB National Programs. Today, I welcome a new co-host, Jason Kronk, who is president of the nonprofit Institute of Operational Privacy Design. So much has been going on in the privacy space since our last episode, and this season we intend to dive into many of the issues our listeners and their companies may be dealing with. But first, I thought it'd be really fun if we could just spend some time getting to know my new co-host, Jason. So, Jason, welcome. Well, thanks, Donna. I'm excited to be here. I've I've been on a couple of podcasts before. Uh, this will be the first time I'm co-hosting, so this will be an interesting new experience for me. So thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So I'm, I want to really just dive into who Jason is, what you've been doing, get our listeners familiar with who you are. So let's start at probably the obvious question, which is how did you get into privacy and maybe the why you got into privacy as well? Sure. So I would say it's a circuitous route, but I, th- I think a lot of people have a, a similar experience, not necessarily the same the same route that I got into it, but similar level of uh, circuity. Is that a word? I, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, I purposefully got into privacy and, and I will tell you, it was not exactly the easiest thing to do. Uh, especially when I did, even now I hear from people who kind of want to make this profession and they, they find it uh, a little bit difficult. Uh, you probably remember phone books and you had to pay <laughs> to have an unlisted number, but you didn't have to pay if you wanted to, you could put it in any name you wanted. So myself and friends, we all had our phone numbers listed in a phone book under Jerry Garcia. So it would go in a phone book and there'd be like 10 Jerry Garcias and it was all of us because we didn't want to pay the $2 a month or whatever it was to, for an unlisted number. So we learned all these techniques to kind of protect our own our own privacy. So that was kind of the personal interest side uh, of privacy. And like I said, I, w- I was working, I had a, a web hosting and web development company, uh, eventually got into a role in information security Uh, And I kept kind of looking at it and I'm like, oh, I want to get more and more into privacy. And at the time, still there's a a large number, but at the time it was definitely overwhelmingly lawyers. So I ended up going to law school uh, a little bit late in life, but went to law school with kind of a a heavy interest in going into privacy, came out. Unfortunately, it was the bottom of the uh, legal market for privacy, went back working for Verizon in their information security department. And then a couple of years later, was able to parlay that role into a into a privacy role at another large company. And from there, I mean, I started doing kind of the typical privacy analyst, doing a lot of vendor contract reviews and stuff. But I got more and more into privacy by design, which was being championed by Ann Kabukian up in Canada. And really this idea of building privacy in up front uh, as opposed to kind of retroactively or retrofitting things uh, and thinking about privacy and also really kind of exploring one of the things that I that is kind of one of my areas of interest is the difference between privacy and security. And, and certainly back then and even today, a lot of people used to think of privacy as just this narrow part of security that deals with personal data or, or people's personal information, but privacy is so much more. Then I went uh, doing training and, and consulting full-time, and the, my 
career has just continued to to grow and explode since then in, in a number of aspects, which has obviously ultimately culminated in me being involved uh, in this podcast. So, oh, I do want to do want to mention uh, one other thing for for people who may be new to the private session or interested in getting more involved. One of the things that really helped me is there are a lot of different privacy communities and my kind of like ability to jump between those different communities has been instrumental in me really kind of getting a a broad view so i'm involved in the say privacy academic community so that be law professors and kind of lawyers who think more uh, of privacy in a you know philo- philosophical perspective. So the the prime example here is the Privacy Law Scholars Conference that Dan Solove and uh, Chris uh, Hoofnagel uh, put on. Paul Schwartz. Okay. Uh, I think Paul Schwartz is also involved in that. Yeah, and then I also am part of the technical, like privacy enhancing technologies community, which is the conferences of like financial crypto and. Uh, PETS, which is Privacy Enhancing Technology Symposium. And those are, again, a bunch of academics, but more in like the computer science uh, and mathematics departments. Then I'm involved in the privacy engineering world, like the International Workshop on Privacy Engineering and PEPPER, which is Privacy Engineering, engineering Practice and Respect. And these are more a lot of larger companies, some academics, uh, but also larger companies that have privacy engineering roles. And then, of course, I'm involved in the the professionals community through like the IAPP. So, so again, these, these have typically, these are very siloed communities. There, there are some other people who kind of bleed over, but, but my kind of going from each of these communities, I got a lot of different perspectives and it really helped inform uh, not only my understanding of privacy, but my career as well. Great. So I, I actually think that one of I'm going to call it a community where we met years ago, if I recall correctly, is at, it wasn't the Video Game Bar Association, but it was it was when I was working in the video game industry. And there was mm-hmm. an event in Chicago, where I believe that you and I first met. And then, of course, we reconnected at the Law Salon earlier this year. But I agree with you that I think there are just different communities that are really helpful for people who want to get into the into the privacy space. And by the way, I will co-sign on going to law school later in life, which I did as well. Not a bad thing to do. Right. <laughs> oh, oh, it definitely gives you a different perspective. And, Absolutely. and you have, you know, some practical knowledge that say, you know, some people coming right out of undergrad, uh, right yeah. out of school mm-hmm. do not. So you, you've talked about a lot of the, a lot of the consulting work that you've done. I'd be interested to know whether or not you have seen similarities between like small businesses versus large corporations regarding privacy challenges. Is there some sort of symmetry between the challenges that they're having? Because I think the presumption is that what large companies are dealing with are certainly not what small companies are dealing with and vice versa. But I have to imagine that there's some overlap. Well, I think, I think the biggest similarity, and I'm, I'm sure you'll, you know, once I say it, you'll be like, oh yeah, that's obvious, is resource constraints, right? Right. No matter what size business you are, you're only given so much of a budget. I mean, yes, you Fortune 50 company may have a million dollar a year budget, but for the things you have to do, <laughs> that million dollars goes quick, mm-hmm. where smaller companies obviously have, have smaller budget, but it's still a resource constraint. Not only on funding, but also on people. So, so I'd say that's the biggest similarity I see. Mm-hmm. One of the the probably 
bigger challenges in today's economy is a small or medium-sized business can face some of the same international and and huge challenges that a, that a big business would, but certainly without the resources. So you, as a mom-and-pop shop, can put an app on an Apple Store, and all of a sudden it goes viral, and you've got a million people using your system from all over the globe and, and put the potential privacy implications of whatever you're doing, and you did not have the development life cycle, and you don't have in-house counsel, and you don't have the policies and procedures, and you don't have the software that did, you know, security analysis, uh, you know, mm-hmm. to see if there was any bad code or any in your software. So, so that's one of the things where it used to 50 years ago, companies could scale up. You would, you, you had to be local, right. you had to be geographically local, and you had to have you could only have so many customers in your one store. Now you can you can throw something up on a on a website, and if it, if it gets big enough, it goes quickly. It it goes, so right. And and I think you know, when I've talked to small business owners who operate in the app stores, they don't understand or realize that it's global, right? Unless you select North America, the reality of it is is that your app is going to be seen and possibly used globally. They don't fully understand that. But the bigger picture, I think, also is just the standing up of your company, right? The org- setting up, getting your fundraising and doing your money and s- deciding that you need to actually build in at the outset for legal, for legal counsel, for consultations, for trademarks, all that sort of stuff, which when I talk to folks that are sh- starting their small businesses, don't think about it until they actually need it. They don't realize they need it at the outset. Right. And this this funny, funny, you mentioned that. This is one of the challenges I run into. I, I was, for years, I tried to like really promote my services in the like startup community. And I tried to get an angle with investors and like mm-hmm. venture capitalists and something. It's like they want to get companies that think about these things up front right. so they don't face challenges at the end. But they're too busy working on their growth, mm-hmm. working on their initial product that this, unless they are a privacy focused startup, right. this is just not in their their field of vision. They're kind of like, we'll build it and then we'll deal with those mm-hmm. kind of issues. Mm-hmm. You know, once we once we get big enough that one, we have revenue and then two, that we're also in the sights of regulators or the press or things like that, then we'll deal with it. Which, uh, you know, as you've seen with some some companies that have gone viral quickly, that can have potential consequences. But they're they're hopeful that, it, that they they can overcome it. So I think one of the interesting things about the small business is five or ten years ago they didn't have to worry about issues with regards to advertising and ad tech and the the convergence between advertising and privacy right now, right? I mean, you can have a a free app that's ad supported and the implications and complications now with having something that's ad supported is becoming more and more problematic for even the small guys. So I just think that as technology changes, as ad tech grows and this convergence of privacy and advertising continues to become more complicated and intertwined, I think it's going to be even more challenging for the small guys. Yeah, so I, I think that 
brings up an interesting point that we can we can go off at some certainly some discussion points on, on that. You know, just as it's challenging for consumers to understand what businesses are say doing with their data or, or you know how they're interacting with them, small businesses have that same challenge, right? Mm-hmm. So you throw in a plug-in or throw in some software library into your app or onto your website, you have no clue where all of that is spiraling, mm-hmm. you know, how it's being used, where it's going. And even if you try to, even if the company provides really detailed privacy notifications and here's all the things, it's like so much to read. It's so dense mm-hmm. in terms of you have to have a, I mean, I, I just recently did for a medium-sized business. It was, you know, I think a thousand person company or something, uh, a dive into their ad tech mm-hmm. base for like a data flow diagram. And, and I mean, I knew I was kind of naive in this area, but it was just the amount of information that I had to learn to help them understand what they were doing in terms of, of, of the ad space. And, and it was very interesting because a number of the, you know, I would talk to their tech staff mm-hmm. and I'd say, okay, you're, you're connecting this app or this software service to this software service. What data are they exchanging? And they're like, we don't know. We don't you know. have to contact the vendor. Right. And I'm like, I don't have time to contact the vendor. <laughs> you you only gave me so much of a budget, right, right. <laughs> to do this investigation. I don't have time to go to read all of this. But similarly, they don't have the time or resources. And so there's this whole world. Now, I, I, I want to kind of also, you know, use this as, as a point of reference. A lot of people are like, well, what's the big deal? What's the harm in getting targeted advertising in some computer system somewhere knowing that you like X, Y, and Z, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it is that is, is potentially relevant to you. And yes, I mean, we could certainly go off and there's some, you know, potential tangible harms, especially in the like reproductive rights space and, and that sort of thing. But even just at a baseline, and this is what I have to deal with every day in talking to companies about privacy risk, it's like the, the, the risk is that these companies are using data in ways that are unappreciated, unwelcomed, and not some like tangible consequence. But if you ask consumers, you're like, do you want 300 companies to have access to your data? Right. They'll say no. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is a social norm that people don't want this. Right. So there doesn't have to be a subsequent tangential harm. It just has to be that, hey, we don't like this. Mm-hmm. And, and if you, if, sorry, if you'll indulge me a second, one, one of the examples I always use is like, if, if I were to install a, a covert camera in your uh, apartment or house, almost invariably everybody would say that is a privacy violation. Okay, well, what is the harm? Mm-hmm. You're not, I'm not using it for identity theft. I'm not, you know, I'm not blackmailing you. I'm not doing anything with the camera, with the the, the feed, but, but we still consider that a, a harm. And so if society, and this is borne out by surveys and asking people, if society doesn't want all these advertisers using all this data for all this purpose, then that is the, the harm right. uh, that's being inflicted. Right. No, I think it boils down to consumer trust, right? I mean, this is, we, we talk about this all the time with our companies about building consumer trust and transparency. 
And you can't have transparency if you yourself as a first party company don't know and can't disclose to your consumers exactly what's being done with their data and being able to put limitations on it. Well, you know, what's what's funny is, so I try to practice what I preach in terms of like privacy, like my website, I don't have any cookies on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't use any advertising. Now, granted, I'm not a bit, you know, my uh, service is not based on advertising, but I try to limit the amount of data when I'm asking for, you know, information. It's like, all I need is you want me to contact you about my services, give me an email address. And that's basically it. You don't have to give me your name, you know, nothing else. And I'm not asking for a whole bunch of like, what state are you in? What country are you in? And all the sorts of things. But people are like, oh, it's so complex. I have to, there's so many laws and I have to do all of this <laughs> stuff. And, you know, it's like, no, just make your services simpler. Right. <laughs> right? Don't, don't overcomplicate it. And by scaling back and trying to make things much simpler, it's going to reduce the burden on you to be transparent and reduce the burden on the consumer to understand what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what we are talking about consumer trust, and I think that leads us in part to um, something that happened earlier this week. So we are recording this the week after TikTok's CEO testified on the Hill. And I would love to get your, your feedback on that, your thoughts on that, because I think part of that is, okay, let's, let's ban this app here in the United States. And I think I think the number was 153 million users here in the U.S. I think banning it is is probably not the solution and not sure it would actually happen. But, of course, the conversation is about the harms and the harms about whether or not the data is being shared with the Chinese government along those lines. But would love to hear your thoughts on TikTok. Well, so I did not watch the, the, the hearings, although I were familiar that they were going on. But... There's a lot of interesting elements of this. So one, I want to point out the parallels between this and Europe. So Europe has been highly concerned with data of European residents coming over to the United States and being accessed by the NSA, by the FBI, CIA, you know, whatever law enforcement or intelligence officials in the U.S. Right. Hence privacy shields. Going away. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there were a whole bunch of these attempts that we don't need to go into the history here and bore people with it. But yeah, there's been a whole bunch of attempts. And and basically the stumbling block is ultimately if data is in the U.S., it's potentially accessible by U.S. law enforcement. And this is exactly the same argument that the U.S. is using against TikTok and China, except we don't have a federal data protection law. So they're trying to kind of come up with this example, sua sponte, uh, make it out of whole cloth because of this concern. And there is a potential national security concern. And, you know, do we do we really want a potential adversary to have all of this detailed information about U.S. residents? So but but I think it, it brings up another interesting point is what do you do with these companies that are so big and ubiquitous, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, TikTok has 150 million users, that it, let's say it was a law that data couldn't leave the US, right? Right, And they weren't doing it. What do you do to stop them? Because it's a conundrum mm-hmm. in, in terms of, of companies being too big to regulate. Right. There's a threat of, in Europe, of regulating Facebook meta and mm-hmm. Facebook is saying, well, we're going to pull out of Europe. I, I mean, I, 
I can't see Facebook pulling out of Europe, no. but I also can't see the European regulators, quote unquote, shutting down Facebook in Europe. So okay. it's like, where does the standoff end? Mm-hmm. I, I think the bigger problem with TikTok, it isn't, it, it isn't necessarily a, what we would typically consider a privacy issue of, of going to the Chinese. That's certainly the national security focus, but it is this incessant manipulation and and people just scrolling on TikTok for hours. Hours. Now, now, Donna, I'm gonna I'm gonna see. I don't suspect you are, but I I, I question it. Are you geeky enough <laughs> to have watched Star Trek: The Next Generation? <laughs> yes. Okay, so there was an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where they got some, like, glasses, and it played a game. Game, right. And, <laughs> and they shared it between members, and it's like, oh, you got to play this game, you got to play this game. And it was just like, they were mind-numbingly playing this game, and it was like doing some, like, manipulation of brain. That was, like, kind of the thing I thought about with TikTok, uh, with these, you know, scrolling videos. And it's just like this network effect of, of going to other people and it's like oh you got to watch this tiktok video and all of a sudden then people are scrolling for six hours on tiktok watching these five second videos right yeah so so that was kind of my reaction is like oh my god who's gonna save the enterprise now from tiktok <laughs> no that's right and, and i do think that there was probably some conversation in, in the five plus hours of testimony with regard to the level of addiction to users, of course, they focused on children and their use of TikTok and the platform and whether or not TikTok is adhering to significant privacy laws, especially COPPA here in the U.S. But yes, I think TikTok has a number of problems, but I do think that the irony and, dare I say, hypocrisy of our government with regards to how we're treating TikTok is interesting, to say the least. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. So... This plays into a very interesting concept. Uh, this might be a little too far afield for the, the privacy discussion, but I've, I've thought about this for years. And I'm very much of a open academic person. Like we want to sh- share information and knowledge with the world and not try to keep it sequestered mm-hmm. in any particular geographic location. But there's a concern that China is kind of weaponizing knowledge in terms of kind of coming over and stealing intellectual property is not the right phrase, but it's like they're, they are subsidizing students to come over here to then bring that knowledge back to China, but in a way that it's meant to be competitive with the United States, mm-hmm. not necessarily cooperative to build up society and, and across the world. So it's, it's kind of this interesting conundrum and how we compete with China but how much freedom and, and kind of talk about data flows around the world, mm-hmm. how much do we kind of restrict that to geographies? And is that the way to go? Or is it is it open borders for data? I don't know. It's, it's just a fascinating topic to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Is, is it open borders depending on your company, your country's politics and culture? And we say that the, that the, the Internet and, and everything else is borderless, but is it really borderless? Right, right. You know, we're we're seeing that. So, I want to I, I want to do something new with you that I think we'll do with other guests this season, which is some of our listeners are familiar, maybe familiar, and a fan like I was of James Lipton and Inside the Actor Studio, where he asked these questions at the end of all of his interviews, and it was based on this questionnaire by a French journalist, Bernard Pivot. 
hope I'm pronouncing that right. But the questions are hopefully going to give us some insight into our guests. And even though you're my co-host, I, I'm, I'm going to try these out on you. Let's see how this goes. So we'll start with what is your favorite word? So I am not going to answer what is your favorite word, but I, when I will talk about words, and I, I, I love words and I love language. I, I love the nuances of different words. So, and, and I think I would say it's partially my legal background, but I, I had this before. And I think that's why one of the reasons I did well in, in law school. So like you'll, you'll often hear people talk about, oh no, we had a verbal contract. Right. Well, verbal just means with words. What they probably meant is you had an oral, oral contract, exactly, right. right? So you had it, it wasn't written down, but a written contract is still verbal because it is, it is written with words. It's not a nonverbal contract. So that kind of thing. Now I will, so, sorry. So your question was, what's your favorite word? I'm going to broaden that a little bit. So I like, I like words that describe words. And I will say that as someone who has taught English as a second language for many, many years, our, our, the English language is so complex for non-English speakers. Right. And I, I can't tell you how many words there are <laughs> that are so difficult to explain, especially when it comes to emotions and feelings. It's so complex. Oh, oh, oh I, I got, sorry, I've got to get this out now that you think about this. So I'm, I'm involved with uh, the IEPP and their privacy engineering advisory board. And we were trying to write up like an infographic on what is privacy engineering. Mm -hmm. And the definition that we were floating around, there was some discussion of privacy requirements versus, and I was arguing for requirements for privacy. And all of the other people participating were non-native English speakers. And they're mm -hmm. like, that doesn't, it sounds the same to me. It sounds like it had the same meaning. And I'm like trying to explain that there's a, a nuanced difference mm -hmm. and the privacy requirements being things like, oh, it has to have the ability to delete data or you have to have the ability to access data so you can tell people what data you have on them. And all of these like specific requirements for a system that meet your, your privacy goals. And then the, the requirement for privacy is this amorphous requirement in law or in social norms or whatever that you include privacy in the consideration and the design of whatever you're building. So there was a subtle difference, but unfortunately, the, the English is a second language people, <laughs> because English is complicated and it had these slightly subtle different definitions for requirements. Uh, the word requirement, they weren't quite just catching it. So it was, uh, again, fascinating and interesting discussion and, and completely pertinent and relevant to, obviously, the, the privacy profession. Right. <laughs> but I will go on to the next question, which is what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give a simple answer for this. I think uh, I was trying to think of this probably astronaut. Yeah. I would love to do some kind of space exploration. That just, just fascinating. That's cool. You know, something or, or deep sea marine biologist okay. or something. I, I love going places that are hard to get to and that not many people have been to. Do you scuba dive? I do. I do. All right. So what profession would you like not to attempt? Yeah, so I don't have a specific one here, but I was thinking anything that is not intellectually stimulating. <laughs> my brain gets bored very quickly. 
and I have to, a lot of people like they're out jogging. When I exercise, I listen to podcasts mm -hmm. uh, because music, I mean, I, I enjoy music, but it's for a couple of minutes. I'm like thinking about things and whatever the podcast, as long as it's an intellectually stimulating podcast, I can get lost in and, and think about, but I, I get very frustrated when I can't think. I think it's, it's a problem for a, uh, certainly a, a lot of people, mm -hmm. but they're, they're forced into factory jobs where they're doing the same thing repetitively over and over and over again. Right. And it's just not intellectually stimulating enough. Right. And they may well be listening to NPR while they do it. Yes. All right. So last question. If any problem in the privacy landscape could be solved for tomorrow, what would you want it to be? Uh, probably the biggest problem I've run into is a lack of understanding of what privacy is. Mm -hmm. Go into companies and they're very narrow, restricted. It's like, oh, it's the confidentiality of personal data. And of course, they restrict personal data to be like driver's license and passport numbers, right? So this, this narrow concept of privacy and not this kind of broad umbrella of privacy, from my perspective, is about the interactions between individuals and others in society and the ability of the individuals to shape and control those interactions in a way that society is willing to accept and agree with. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the old, there's the, the legal phrase, privacy is about your subjective expectations and society's ob objective willingness to mm -hmm. agree to it or something like that. So it, it is about these interactions and any type of interaction between an individual and others in society is this much broader umbrella. Although I, I tend to more like pick categorization and use like Solov's taxonomy of privacy mm -hmm. to more put that in a granular fashion that people can, can realize. And I start giving examples and, and it opens up people's mind, but, but their immediate reaction is very narrow that it's just about oh it's about the secrecy of data right and about keeping data secret from other people right uh, and and privacy is much more much more than that right well i think people think about privacy not as it relates to data privacy right the layman's perception of what privacy is in their personal lives and not moving that over to really what data privacy is and and i think what you and i deal with every day sure so I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. I'm really looking forward to a very good season ahead of us. So thank you so much for your time today, Jason. And we'll be talking again soon. Excellent. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the, the year and, and bringing on some guests and having some discussions with them. And it'll be exciting. Yep, absolutely. If you missed any of our previous episodes, you can check them out at accountabilitystudios.org, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review and let us know what you'd like to hear next from Privacy Abbreviated.